Hi, and welcome back to this two-part episode of Archaeology Southeast Digs Deeper. This week we're talking to Michael Shapland about historic buildings. Part one was about how we try to capture the spirit as well as the structure of buildings we're recording, and this part we'll talk about one of Michael's most exciting projects, the Brighton Dome. So let, let's talk about the kind of star of the show building that we're going to talk about today that definitely does have a soul and definitely <laughs> did, yeah. did have a huge multitude of human interactions that um, contributed to that soul. And that's the, the Brighton Dome project. Mm. So like, do you want to just tell us about the project, like what, um, how it came about and yeah, what, what you found? So the... Brighton Dome, it's a big kind of cultural complex in the heart of Brighton, just just mm-hmm. near the seafront. And it's part of the Brighton Pavilion kind of complex. Um, I'm sure many of, of you will be familiar with the Brighton yeah, Pavilion. Yeah, talking great big... literally heart of Brighton here. Like Yeah, yeah. The pavilion. Uh, it's a sort of it's got these onion domes and it's this ludicrous oriental folly built by the Prince Regent, uh, future George IV in the sort of last decades of the 18th century, first decades of the 19th century, as mm-hmm. a kind of, as a palace, an alternative palace. His dad had been on the throne for decades and George was just a bit of a loose end as heir mm-hmm. to the throne and and he, he went off to this fashionable Brighton resort and helped to make it fashionable and, and, and treated it as a place to kind of... Get, get away from the, the 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 confines of court life in London, and this was his mm-hmm. this was his kind of ludicrously overblown party palace in, mm-hmm. in such, such some ways. Um, and so it's it had a lot of um, issues with the building, and it, it needed extending and repairing and, and and all that stuff. And the bit of the the building that we were asked to look at was the former stables um which has for a long time been a kind of a a music venue and a cultural space um and all that sort of thing it's where the eurovision song contest in 1970 something was was uh, performed it's where abba did waterloo oh my god (laughs) was was in the stable (laughs) of george the fourth's palace in Brighton uh, and so as part of this renovation project they were going to knock bits off and stick bits on and dig dig holes and add a basement and you know mm. all that sort of thing major sort of multi-million pound refurbishment project because the building is listed they were um, required to have a record of it undertaken before it was changed um, mm-hmm. and then subsequent visits made to try and understand about as much the building as you could as it was being kind of dismantled and put back together again, this this was the time to to see what you know secrets the the fabric of the building had had to tell, mm-hmm. and so that's why we were asked to go. Um, and so this was well, and and it's in the middle of Brighton, and it stood on the site of something we kind of didn't really expect, which was the Quaker stuff. So right, before we yeah. talk about the building, I could talk about the Quakers. Yeah. So this this is a part of Brighton which throughout the medieval period was just probably fields and then as Brighton expanded which it did incredibly fast in the 18th century it became it went from a fishing village uh, to a massive seaside fashionable resort in the space mm-hmm. of about kind of 
50 years or something. Um, and, and the first recorded use of the site of George Prince Regent's palace was a Quaker meeting house um, just on the, what was the northern edge of the town, which is now the centre of the town because Brighton's expanded so much. Um, and there was a cemetery there, um, a little walled cemetery where the first Brighton's buried. And this is a period when Quakers were a sort of persecuted religious mm. minority. And so they had to keep themselves, you know, as a fairly kind of coherent community and, and look out for each other. And so they had quite a, a tight knit community with its own burial ground in, in the centre of this nascent community. Uh, and when George uh, built his stable, he built it partly on the site of this cemetery, which had been going for a hundred years. And his, his actions meant that the Quakers had to move down mm. the road and set up a new meeting house and a new cemetery, um, you know, a few hundred metres away, which is still there. And that's the one that, that, that they have nowadays. But we sort of, we knew this, this meeting house was there, but we didn't really realise that this cemetery would be underneath, exactly underneath of where we'd be digging to make, mm. you know, where, where, where the new basement for this um, cultural complex was, was being sunk. And so we hit 18 skeletons of Quakers. Gosh. Um, I, I didn't get involved so much with the with the cemetery excavation. So I'm reporting other people's um, hard and mm. careful work here. But yeah, various aspects of the Quaker population, things we didn't really expect. Like they seem to be eating quite a lot of sugar, um, mm. which is odd because they they didn't go in for sugar because they knew that it was grown in the West Indies on slave plantations. Right. Um, and, and as a kind of early fair trade kind of mindset. For that yeah. reason, Quakers were very vocal against the slave trade in general yeah. and against the products of slavery in, in particular, like sugar. Uh, mm -hmm. But yet, actually, this cemetery population had lots of tooth decay as a result mm. of probably eating sugar. Um, and Quakers are supposed to be quite um, kind of modest and restrained in their dress. Uh, but one of the skeletons seems to have worn a corset. And if you wear a corset for long enough, it, it starts to, to deform your yeah. rib, rib cage. And it may be a, a, a medical corset, you know, we, we don't know. Mm. This, this is unrepresentative stuff. It may be that the tooth decay was, was caused by eating loads and loads of honey. Um, you know, yeah. you, you can't start to sort of, you know, throw accusations about. Um, and and there's lots of um, notches in the teeth where clay tobacco pipes. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, and if you if you smoke a clay pipe, not that I do, yeah. perhaps you do. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I if, don't if you know. But... Do, do it for long enough, then, then it leaves notches in your teeth. And some yeah. of these skeletons had 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 that, and obviously tobacco grown by slaves in right, yeah, you know yeah. the West Indies. So the the, the sort of the, the the looking at the skeletons was actually quite informative about mm -hmm. about the sort of um, the reality of Quaker life in this small early community in Brighton. Um, so that, that's all good stuff. But then the Prince of Wales comes along and in 1804, he wants a stable, which is like a great big dome structure, um, mm -hmm. which is where ABBA performed Waterloo, um, yeah. you know, it's 200 years later. And then next to it was what's called a riding house. So okay. basically it's a big open rectangular hall where if it's raining, or if you're incredibly fat and self-conscious, as was 
Prince George, uh, right. then you can you can practice your horsemanship um, in peace and it, away from prying eyes. <laughs> exactly, yeah, and, and lots of um, you know palaces and rich people had a riding house, um, and and um, the prince's dad, George III, built a riding house, and he built what was then the widest riding house at Buckingham House, later Buckingham mm -hmm. Palace, um, and George. He had to have a slightly bigger one, so he yeah. built a really big riding house in Brighton, which was much larger than it needed to be, and it was actually bigger than the riding manuals of the day said it should be, because there's a kind of an right. optimum width, apparently, for riding houses and, and and what horses need as a space to turn, and all that sort of thing, uh, which is twelve meters, and so he built one which is seventeen meters wide. Just because you know he had because. to have a bigger one, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. Like, I want the biggest riding house, um, which is fine, you know, as that's all up to him. But but it did mean that he took a chunk of the cemetery away, mm -hmm. which necessitated the reburial of Quakers, um, and this is reported in a contemporary newspaper account. Okay, uh, but also some of the bones that we found that my co colleagues found were themselves reburied like a jumble right. of bones in a pit and yeah. a coffin uh one child's coffin now the coffin didn't survive to the present but you know you can see the the the, the, the coffin handles and that sort of thing mm -hmm. um but then this newspaper said that there was a coffin taken out of the ground and reburied during the building of the riding house back in 1803 and so we think we found that coffin right but it's all sort of but actually then maybe that child and those people had only been in the ground for five years. Um, yeah. So actually it would have been quite a profound and disrespectful act yeah. saying, I want to build a stupidly big house to ride my horses around in. So yeah. you're going to have to take up, you know, yeah, you're dead, granny and, and yeah. <laughs> you know, stick it somewhere else. Um, yeah. and, and that's all there is to it. And move your meeting house somewhere else yeah yeah so it's it's got a sort of slightly contentious origin which which we, we sort of unpicked as a result of of doing this excavation and it, it would have been i mean obviously the quakers couldn't say no because no. they were a persecuted minority and he was the prince of wales so what could they do they just had to you know suck it up and and get on with it yeah um but then they they did have not exactly a target that they could take their frustrations out on but well the prince of wales had a mistress well he had many mistresses um mm -hmm. and to the extent that he was capable of you know human love he seems to have genuinely loved this one mrs fitzherbert yeah. she she, mm -hmm. she was called and he tried to marry her and this this was you know not on and so he wasn't allowed to and had to marry somebody he didn't particularly um, get on with so well and and mm. it was probably all rather unfortunate but she she was kept on as a royal mistress for years and years in Brighton um mm. and next door to his enormous stables um he built her a little stable block a bit more right. like a kind of one that we'd think of as being a, a you know a few horses and a little you know place to keep your hay you know like like yeah. a sort of a sensible sort of thing uh, so it would have looked a bit ridiculous, you know, his <laughs> his his thing and her thing. There was an imbalance of 
power there yeah. I think, in their relationship but you know it was nice of him, him to think of it um but yeah so the quakers this was built on the site of the quaker meeting house uh, mm. overlooking their cemetery and um they were not happy about that and they mm -hmm. kicked up a fuss specifically they didn't like the fact that a bedroom window on the first floor of the building was overlooking their the site of their mutilated cemetery right um, which is odd that there was a bedroom in a stable mm -hmm. you know you 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 wonder whether <laughs> it was a bit of a love nest yeah. <laughs> as, as well as being a stable i don't know because we we found possible evidence for a tunnel leading underneath the floor of the riding house no. um, and opening up or at least heading towards mrs fitzherbert's kind of human oh scale stable block <laughs> possibly because there were tunnels sneaky. there 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 was a tunnel which is still there from the palace mm. to the stables which is kind of well known about and i think you can go on special tours and things and it's there it's because he got so sort of grotesquely fat that he <laughs> felt really embarrassed about being seen so oh. he sort of shuffled around underground you know oh, um, but, but there, there seems to there was a basically a long deep kind of cutting about a meter and a half tall under uh -huh. the floor which we didn't understand and it's it's it may be a tunnel so anyway mrs fitzherbert had a bedroom on the top floor of her stable block um and the quaker said fine we'll put up with this but you've got to pay us some money every month as long as that window remains unblocked right um, and so they did uh, okay and and then this building was knocked down in 1934 and replaced with a, a sort of tea room type thing which then became a kind of studio theater uh, but actually it didn't so when we kind of knocked away one part of this 1934 building then um underneath was the stable surviving to full height um like one wall of it and that was the same wall that would have overlooked the cemetery so we didn't know the cemetery was there um yeah we found the cemetery wall which was still standing um built into the later riding house structure uh and then we found the stable block standing all the way to the top uh, and we found a blocked window overlooking right the cemetery so and there, there was the window and it had been blocked up so it's one of these sort of moments where you have a like a, a fairly you know unimportant piece of, of of documented history and then you you find the thing and you yeah. think a building is one thing and as i say you know it's, it's lived many lives and this was a previous life this building had lived and 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 there it was you know and so there was an opportunity to kind of mark it before it itself was dismantled and the, the building yeah. is sort of starting a new phase of its existence and then the later history of the building yeah which, which, this building which I... is just so it's like <laughs> so rich in in everything <laughs> yeah so you had um oh, george the fourth ascended to the throne in 1820 and and he died 10 years later um and his successor was his brother so although George the Fourth had lots and lots of kids, they were all illegitimate because he had lots and lots of mistresses. Right. Um, and so that was the end of his line. His brother, William the Fourth, probably the most forgettable monarch, I think, <laughs> in, in, in British history. Uh, so he lasted for seven years and then he got Queen Victoria. And right. she obviously didn't really like the Brighton Pavilion. 
um, it wasn't really her cup of tea, <laughs> particularly. And so she stripped out the contents and used it to furnish Buckingham House, which became Buckingham right. Palace. Um, and then she put it on the market and it was bought by the city of Brighton for use mm. as a civic space. And it had obvious uses. So the army took over the stable. But this riding house, this kind of enormous hall, big open space, was a sort of a less obvious use for it. So they turned it into a, a corn exchange, which is basically like a stock market, but for agricultural goods. Okay. So, um, and that, that's why it's known as the corn exchange now. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so it, that's what it was for kind of most of the 19th century, except when it became a skating rink for a bit. Right. As you do. As, as, as you do, you know, di- diversify uh, and all that. And it <laughs> became a museum for a while. So mm-hmm. the civic authorities turned it into what essentially was Brighton Museum uh, in, in between times. Um, and it uh, was one of the first buildings in 1883 to get electricity. Uh, ah. So it was a sort of a bit, bit of a, a test bed for these for these new and exciting developments like r- roller skates and electricity yeah. <laughs> and things. Um, and then uh, and then the First World War happens. Right. Um, and it, it is relatively well known that Brighton Pavilion because it's this kind of ludicrous Taj Mahal inflected structure, which is just, you know, doesn't look like anything else. Um, It was thought an appropriate place for Indian servicemen or or, or troops from the Indian subcontinent, or basically anyone who was slightly other was thought to be, um, this was thought to be a good place to put them if they were wounded on the front. Because A, it was a PR coup. Um, Look how we're putting these these good citizens of the empire in a space that they might find homely. Yeah. (laughs) Just sort of ludicrously, just heavy, you know, cat-handed, patronising. Yeah. You can see what they were trying to do, but, you know, lumping everybody together from a vast area of Asia and saying, yeah. oh, yes, they all like buildings that look like the Taj Mahal. Let's all put right, them there. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, but, you know, they did. So, yeah, you know, obviously there's sort of issues with that. So it mm. became a hospital for Indian servicemen from the Western Front um, in 1914, I think. And so there's lots of kind of postcards of, of happy servicemen, you know, sitting in in this interior and and the riding house um became a hospital ward like mm-hmm. you know beds and beds and beds all, all lined up in in rows um and then it became a hospital for limbless and amputee servicemen so it sort of specialized so the the indian kind of pr thing i think lasted a couple of years and then it became a specialist hospital for for troops who'd had limbs blown off on the western front um, mm. And it was one of a few such hospitals. And then you get the development of, of plastic surgery and, and artificial limbs. And that science kind of grew out of this conflict. Yeah. Uh, and, and Brighton Pavilion was one of the places where that was, was pioneered, um, which is all to the good. And we sort of we knew about this. And this is, you know, relatively well understood history. But um, part of the building works involved taking away the walls of the riding house 
and it had this sort of math 1950s kind of fiber board which was painted kind of peach and it looked really gruesome and that, that was taken <laughs> away and that's fine and then much to our surprise there was the original cladding for the riding house the original kind of timber boarding survived um mm -hmm. and that was taken away and underneath that was the timber frame skeleton that held up the internal vault of the building um and behind that so it's just sort of layers and layers and layers behind that is the stone wall that held up the roof because the mm -hmm. external roof was structurally independent of the internal vault it's a complicated structure to roof this enormous span and inside there was found this kind of cache of material from the first world war from from this right. very period so there was some um, newspapers in hindi which presumably was was supplied to the sort of 1914 to 16 incarnation of the hospital mm -hmm. there was letters written to and from the troops um which is probably relating to the 19 sort of 17 18 period of its use as a as an amputee hospital mm. um and lots of other bits and bobs which are which are mentioned but there was letters written between troops who were trying to decide kind of what sort of artificial arm yeah. to have and, and like one of them was written by an officer to a private and they were saying basically you're a private so you're going to have to have an arm which is good for manual labor because right. you're, you're from the lower classes and yeah. <laughs> you know i i'm going to need an arm which is good for kind of you know clerical work because i'm from the middle classes so the, yeah, the kind of yeah. the, the, the destiny of these troops was already mapped out yeah you know before the war and the class system remained through the war officers and men you know tommies and all that and then and yeah. then the arms you got in the hospital and then the future you know employment you would be expected to, to do after the war was over yeah um so these little fugitive glimpses um and one of them was was saying he was writing to his mate in Roehampton, which was another one of these amputee kind of um, hospitals, saying it's really boring in Roehampton. There's nothing to do. <laughs> you know, we've all got to be home by kind of seven p.m. Um, whereas in Brighton, yeah, you know, it, it's great because we're just on the doorstep and there's a seaside resort here. Uh, and actually, one of the things we found in amongst this material was a cinema ticket for a cinema. Right in Hove and a bus ticket so clearly the, the the troops were able to kind of you know they were better off than than in Roehampton you know yeah yeah they had stuff to do they, they could get out of there which is good you know and, and probably yeah much better for their sense of well-being than being cooped up of um, course yeah and then there's there's a sad series of letters um because the, the other two letters were written by people from other places to troops in this hospital right in um in, you know this this ward in in the riding house and then uh there was a load more letters which was the same letter it was like drafts of a letter that was never sent yeah. written by a troop from the hospital um and it's like it's like a love letter written to someone called may yeah um, and he's sort of he's basically trying to write the letter getting cross scrumpling it up yeah. and then having another go 
Um, and so you've got two or three drafts of this letter, uh, which is kind of like awkwardly written and he's apologising for how bad his letter is. You know, if you're writing a letter, a love letter to someone, you know, his kind of opening gambit is, I'm sorry, this letter is really badly expressed. I'm no good at writing letters, you know, sort of. Uh, and then he sort of goes on to kind of say that it would be, you know, nice to see her and there's no pretty girls in Brighton and, you know, all this sort yeah. of thing, all these 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 touching kind of slightly fumbling attempt to yeah. presumably rekindle a relationship that he may have had in 1913 or, or before he left for the front. Um, maybe four years before, maybe 1919 or so, maybe years had passed. Mm, um, mm. And of course, he'd be writing the letter from Brighton Pavilion because he'd lost a limb or more yeah. limbs. Um, yeah, and, and you think about the mental state of this serviceman. Presumably he'd be traumatised and he's trying yeah. to kind of rekindle his past life and, and you know, visibly failing yeah. and, and getting cross and frustrated and I hope he sent the letter. Um, yeah, you know, of course we, we don't know. Like we've only got the drafts. We've only got the drafts. But it may be that uh, we could find this stuff out. I mean, it sort of went slightly beyond the scope of our work. We have mm. names and we have regiments and, and, and we have, you know, the letters are indecipherable in places and, and, and things. But you could probably work out whether May uh, ever got that letter. You yeah. Know, whether, you know, the years had, had rolled on and she didn't want to hear from, you know, Aww. I don't think we even know his name, but. No. Maybe they got married and had, you know, plenty of kids who are still alive yeah. today. We, we don't know. Uh, and it would be quite tantalising to find that out. But we found um, other stuff with the letters as well. So we found kind of lots of bottles of beer. And, and um, I should say as well, we didn't actually find this stuff. So one of the workmen on the site, um, Adam Day, I think his name was. And I should always name check him when I talk about this stuff. Because he, he said, blimey, there's some stuff here and got in touch um right and you know that's why we could record it and kind of yeah. collate it and understand it and research it in, in this way so you know hats off to to, to mr day but um yeah. we found a load of um beer bottles and fag packets and cigarette um ends and uh matchboxes but they weren't allowed to smoke in right the in building, the hospital in the yeah. hospital because it's this 200 year old building made of wood um <laughs> yeah. and they weren't probably allowed to drink because you know they're in a hospital yeah um and so what it seems to be was there was a particular place up in the roof where the sort of the inner shell and the outer shell of the building kind of leave a gap and there's a skylight there mm. so they seem to have ferreted their way from the main ward up into the roof space to this little spot under the skylight yeah. where they could get a bit of peace and quiet and they could sit and illicitly drink and smoke and they could read the newspaper in peace and yeah. they could read their letters in peace um, and they could sit there trying and failing to write a letter to their sweetheart in peace. Yeah. Um, and there's this little kind of void where if you chucked stuff, then it would fall down between the two bits of the building and not be found for a hundred years. 
Yeah. So it's it's a kind of like a little piece of social history which yeah. which adds sort of colour to this fairly well known and well understood kind of historical use for this building. Yeah, absolutely. And and then and then that all ends and then the building uh has another series of kind of peculiar uses. It get it's it's the eighth General Assembly of the UN happens inside it. Oh right. Nineteen fifty three. You know, and then sort of twenty five years later you've got a- Abba singing Waterloo, you know, just yeah. next door. Um Did you listen to Waterloo at any time that you were like walking around the building? <laughs> I did I actually looked up kind of the YouTube footage for that yeah. to see whether I could kind of Yeah. But it was sadly it wasn't the riding house, it was in the stables. That, that okay, they, right. They, they so did yeah, that. not so, quite yeah, the same ne- building. next door. But all part of the same site. And so yeah. just in terms of the idea that, that we were thinking about earlier about you know, a building like a person lives many lives and yeah. the life it was intended for it to have lived, a very high status place for kind of fine horsemanship mm. on the site of a cemetery for Quakers, a persecuted minority, mm-hmm. um, you know, ends up being a hospital for limbless troops having been a skating rink um and a museum and then the un meet there you know and then it becomes a place where i've been to gigs and and it will be again because the refurbishment i think is is now nearing its its close right Uh, so if if we're sort of alive to not just the traditional architectural history of a of a building and what it was supposed to look like when it was built but all these sort of you know all these these things that's happened to it through time then then it can be quite illuminating i think and quite yeah eloquent i i love the idea that we can track especially with the with the letters mm. and the cigarette ends that we can literally track this sort of illicit sneaking off to smoke in the roof <laughs> to find a bit of peace and quiet and read your letters yeah and that the act of throwing rubbish away i mean for for archaeologists like rubbish is especially for me as a zoo archaeologist rubbish is my literal job like mm, mm. we look at the remains of people's dinners but in a kind of more more specifically human rubbish um how creating that cache of rubbish has been able to tell us so much about a specific moment in time in a yeah. building and, and how that structure a, of the building allowed it it's a fairly kind of extreme example but even in you know i've had places where there's just been an old house and mm. under the floorboard, I found, you know, a rusty penknife and a bent spoon and some bits of colourful pot. Yeah. And you think a hundred years ago, a child, this was probably their little kind of treasure trove. Yeah, and under hid a this floorboard. Here. Yeah. It doesn't really mean yeah. anything. It doesn't really tell us anything. You know, children lived in that house once, you know, yeah. shock horror. Uh, you know, obviously they did. It doesn't you know tell us anything more about that building but it sort of adds to its to its biography i'll definitely be like thinking of buildings in a new way when i mm. go into historic buildings and creepy places and you know to to feel that a place is creepy is it's science it's, yeah. it's not just it's, a, it's, it's, it's a legitimate me being a bit creeped out by the dark and damp it's yeah it's, it's, it's making it's, me it's, feel some sort of way legitimate result <laughs> thing to record the building makes you feel a certain way and, and i think yeah. that's that's the legitimate part of, of the record yeah as you say yeah yeah 
I think that's a really good place to leave the podcast for today. Thank you so much for for such an evocative discussion about buildings and and what potential they have to tell us about the past and and make us feel in the present. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. Well, I will see you around the office hopefully soon if we're all allowed back soon. <laughs> yes. But thank you, Michael. Speak to you soon. We hope you enjoyed that episode of Archaeology Southeast Digs Deeper. You can find more information about the episode in the show notes or on our website at ucl.ac.uk forward slash archaeology dash south dash east forward slash podcast. For more archaeology content, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at ArcSouthEast and Facebook and Instagram at Archaeology Southeast. Thanks for listening.